0: Coming up on the KetoCamp podcast, we bring on human connection specialists and the founder of Create the Love, Mark Groves.
1: Like our relationship to emotion, our relationship... To the information that's coming into ourselves that's coming through our environment through our body's response to things so much are we conditioned to ignore that that the journey of relationship the journey of nutrition they're all teaching us how incredibly wise we are you know all of it is a journey to self like all of it like whether it's your breakup or your drug addiction or overeating or obesity or anything eczema it can be it doesn't really matter it's all saying you're out of alignment
0: we have access to ancient healing strategies such as ketosis fasting and carnivore and on the keto camp podcast we are determined to deliver the science to you we bring in the thought leaders in this space to have extraordinary conversations Hey, Keto Camper. Thank you for pressing play today. My name is Ben Azadi. I am your host. You can learn more about me over at benazadi.com. Today's episode is a special episode with Mark Groves. I really enjoyed the conversation. I was so inspired after we finished hitting record. We dove deep into being authentic. Look, I know this is a keto podcast. I know we bring on amazing health and nutrition experts on intermittent fasting, autophagy and anti-aging and ketosis and all that good stuff. But you got to do the inner work. I always say, inner-size before you exercise. And we're going to discuss the mental six-pack and how creating an authentic relationship, relationships in your life is key to healing the body. And it starts with yourself. You're going to hear his story of what he did along the way to identify blockages and blind spots to work on himself and his relationships. And now he's doing such great work, creating the love and sharing the love and empowering so many people out there. We start the conversation with me sharing a powerful quote from Bill Gove and we get his we get Mark's thoughts on that quote. We get into what stress and conflict does to create poor health and how if you could overcome stress, master stress, you'll improve your health, which will improve your keto journey, your fasting journey, and so much more. We get into the value of living on purpose with your purpose. And I share some really astonishing research on what happens to cardiovascular health when you're stressed out from going to a job that you hate. We talk about relationships. And when you change and make new nutritional changes in your life, you start doing keto, you start doing intermittent fasting, you become a threat to people in your life who don't change and how to handle that and how to create boundaries so you're not guilty and you're able to express what you're doing with others so they can get on board with your new lifestyle. And then of course, we talk about taking the time to learn about love and why love is a verb. And we get into why loving yourself first is key and how to love others. This is such a powerful conversation, an authentic conversation I love Mark. I love his style. I love the way he communicates. I love his story. I love his authenticity. You're going to love him. And when we're done with the episode, go check out his website, his podcast, his YouTube channel, his work. We'll put all that down below. This is going to be a very empowering and inspiring conversation for you. So I hope you're ready to really receive this and make some incredible changes in your life. Hey, before I bring on Mark, I do want to take a minute to get to the Apple Podcast rating and review of the day. This five-star review comes from Anonymous titled, Start Where You Are. What makes this podcast so effective is that it reaches all levels of the audience, whether you're just starting out on your lifestyle journey or looking to really advance your fitness, your health. The principles apply across the spectrum. Bottom line, I'm seeing progress. That is awesome. I'm so glad you're seeing progress. Congratulations. Way to take action. Way to keep pressing play. And thank you, Anonymous, for taking the time to leave that rating and review. If you have not left the Keto Camp Podcast a rating and review on whatever platform you're listening to right now, please take the time to do so. It really helps the show grow. And hey, maybe I will read your review on the next episode. Okay, let's go right into this powerful conversation with Mark Groves. Mark is a human connection specialist. He's the founder of Create The Love. In other words... He's a speaker, writer, motivator, creator, and collaborator. What he does amazingly well is bridging the gap between the academic and the human, inviting people to explore the good, the bad, the downright ugly, and beautiful sides of connection. All the things. He's an emotional translator. He empowers people to give words to their feelings, step into courage, and create the life they love without looking back and saying, heck Yes. He's an amazing human being. I love this man. Here's Mark Groves. Mark Groves, welcome to the Keto Camp podcast, my friend.
1: Thank you for having me. I'm very excited to be able to have this chat with you.
0: We're going to have some fun. I really feel like this is going to be one of the most impactful conversations we had. And that speaks volumes because this is episode 400 and something. And I think this is going to be a great <laughs> one. So I'm setting the bar high. Yeah, you're setting the bar real
1: high. Okay, well, let's dig into our souls and knock this out. Let's do
0: it. Here's what I want to start with. I want to start with the quote, actually, and I want to hear your thoughts on this quote, what it means to you. This quote came in the 1960s from a gentleman named Bill Gove. Bill Gove was one of the best speakers, salesmen. He was the mentor of my mentor, Bob Proctor, and here's what he said. He said, if I want to be free, I've got to be me. Not the me my wife thinks I should be, not the me my kids think I should be. If I want to be free, I've got to be me. So I better know who me is. Mm-hmm.
1: I mean, I think that speaks to the main thing that that we all strive to try to figure out is where are we stuck and where are we pretending to be someone we're not. You know, I think of the main causes of struggles in relationships, struggles in belonging, struggles in self-worth. It's all that you know, that questioning, am I enough? And when we filter ourselves, when we pretend that things are good, when they're not, when we wear masks, when we people please, we're sending the message to ourselves that we're not enough, you know? So I think that's everything because I think true liberation in relationship is the honoring of truth first. Are you willing to tell the truth and that actually be presented at the cost of the relationship? Because when you don't you're saying that this re- this connection being with you is more important than being with truth and unfortunately i think that's actually how we're mostly socialized with relationship is to you know look this way be this way take this role have this behavior don't be too much don't be this don't be too loud And what ends up happening is we're not truly in a relationship with another person as ourselves. So gosh, if we could all strive for authenticity, I mean, authenticity is, I also think, one of the greatest paths to healing because you can drink all the green juice in the world and take all the supplements and biohacks. And those are all great. The external stuff is important. The stuff that you're nourishing your body with relationally and nutritionally are important. But they will never, ever be able to, they will never be able to heal what can only be healed by being aligned with yourself.
0: So, where did that start with you? I I know your history. We were just talking offline, pharmaceutical rep. I I also understand that you got fascinated with uh, influence and human psychology, being a salesperson and seeing how you could influence people. So, when did you start to? understand the importance of living on purpose with your purpose, finding authenticity? And how did you what were your first steps with that? You know, I'd say young, that was a a conscious desire was to
1: do stuff I loved and to, to, I thought I was really good at relationships, you know, I there, I was passionate about them, I think, you know, I was a romantic, I bought the one month anniversary rose that you buy, you know, to the first girlfriend, I had those, those intentions. You know, my father was a researcher, he studied heart failure. So he also had relationships with pharmaceutical reps, I was in sales, I worked at a place that was like Best Buy, it was called Future Shop. It was kind of like the 40 year old virgin, you know, to be honest, it was like, I wore a suit, I sold extended warranties, you know, I was super interested in, in college, I took finance, which I was not interested in finance, but why I had chosen that is because I was taught to make a certain amount of money so I could be a good provider and have a value as a mate. You know, when I look back, that's, I was not passionate about finance. One of my favorite classes in college was psych of child development and also psych of aging. Those were options I took. But I have been taught that you couldn't make money as an artist, or unless you were becoming a doctor, an accountant, an engineer, you know, you're sort of typical, I think, messaging that a lot of us get. And as a pharmaceutical rep, when I graduated college, I started as a rep. And you know, I, I think like anybody who's been influenced by that, I thought I was really doing good. And, and, you know, based on what I knew at the time, I really was. And I was very interested in influencing, as you said, influencing human behavior, but really from a manipulative perspective, I wanted to know, how do you get this person to change from one product to another? And I was so fascinated with how do I get that behavior change? And it wasn't until I had a relationship that ended at 27, that I thought, well, I didn't even want to get engaged. Like, why did I get engaged? That doesn't make any sense. And like, it started to make me think like, why do humans do what they do? Why do they do stuff they don't want to do? Like, that makes no sense. And I was so good at sales. Like, I was very successful at it. And I thought, why am I so good at talking about everything but my feelings? Like, this isn't a skill set issue. And so I really found sort of like a, a rock bottom in that point because I looked back and I thought, when was the last time that I truly felt connected to myself? And it was probably about five or six years before that. And I was in a five-year relationship. And I kind of looked back and I thought, this woman never really got all of me. You know, like it. I had experienced a pretty giant heartbreak at around 1920. And since then, I didn't know I'd done it, but I'd really shut myself off from truly being open. And I thought, you know, unconsciously I created the the message that if I trust people or I love them, they're going to betray me. And and when I love people, I betray myself, I sell myself out. And so it was that, that sort of rock bottom, so to speak, that it had me explore relationships in a totally different way. I read Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. And that was the first book I ever read that was like, Maybe I'm here to do more than just be a provider and die. Like I never thought about purpose, and I remember listening to a talk that was given by a palliative care nurse, and she had quoted Viktor Frankl, and I remember being so moved by this quote. And it wasn't until years later that I read the book where the quote was from, and I just was like, "Oh, yeah, there's something in these words." So I'd say that's where it began, like this this idea of introspection and asking the question, which I think is so the question that is the invitation that you speak about that, that is, why do I do what I do? And, you know, I think the other side of it is this, just this feeling that we get, like, there must be more to life. There must, like, I don't have to keep doing things the way I'm doing them. And, you know, it's sometimes it, I think it's Tony Robbins who says that we change for two reasons. We It hurts so much we have to, or we learn so much we have to. And I think really the learning so much is creating the dissonance that creates the pain to say, you know too much to continue what you're doing. And I think so many of us are sitting on piles of knowledge, but that knowledge doesn't become wisdom till it's implemented, you know? And, and that really seems to be, you know, the the turning point of of change is is implementation. I was just listening to one of your most recent podcasts and uh Dr. Sylvia Terra. That's right. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I could keep wanting to say them the other way. Um, where she was saying, like to be gentle with oneself, but that willpower is ultimately it. But it's it's a muscle that can be worn out. Like it has to be, you have to be gentle with yourself. And I think it's an AA that they say it's about. Progress, not perfection, but it should be progress. The line should still be sloping up for the most part.
0: Yeah, I mean that's just a universal law, right, Mark? Because nothing, nothing stays the same. Either you're regressing or you're progressing. Nothing stays the same. I mean, the, the this bottle right here, this it's moving. It's moving at different speeds. We just can't see it. So either we're progressing forward or we're, we're stepping back. I'm curious. You said you were in a relationship for five, six years. You were engaged. Did you get engaged because it was what was expected of you, social norms? Was that the reason you got engaged? And at what point did you decide to get out of the engagement? Yeah, it was exactly that.
1: I didn't know it, but I was really living the social programming of the story that's been so normalized for us relationally. If you think about it, we're taught that essentially your value is placed in your relationship status. And we could see this by, we get asked questions like, why are you single? And if you actually notice, if you're dating someone, the question is always, or generally, when are you getting engaged? And then when are you getting married? And then when are you having a kid? And then when are you having two kids? And, and if you get divorced, there's often, I, you know, I met a woman the other day who uh, I was talking to her and she said, oh, I'm, I just got divorced. I'm like, oh, my gosh. And she's like, I know I'm a failure. And I was like, oh my gosh, no, not at all. You're liberated. You don't, you'll never hear from me. You're a failure. But you see that social programming. I think, you know, one of the greatest gifts we can give is recognizing the value in goodbyes, seeing that sometimes the most loving thing to do is to to leave. And it was, you know, that that assessment of when I got engaged, I remember asking the question and I was engaged to, to a really wonderful woman, like all the boxes, incredible, amazing person. And I remember when I asked her, she said, yes. And I met this moment that I'd always been taught to want. Like it was like before that, I'd say to people, I'm afraid. I I feel really anxious. And they'd say, you're just afraid of commitment. And I thought, well, I... And there's, again, more of that normal programming, like men are just afraid of commitment. That's just normal. And I thought, well, this feels like so much more than that. Like it felt like I wanted someone to walk me through the feelings I was feeling. But if generally what's normalized is not to do that, then who's going to walk you through a path that most people haven't walked? You know, thank God we have the internet now where you can at least find support groups and people who are navigating similar questions. So I posted on a forum and it was called The Runaway Bride. It doesn't exist anymore, unfortunately. But it was people who had left marriages or engagements. And, and I posted my story and I got so many people asked questions and were inquiring. And I had one woman ask me three questions. And, and this was sort of the turning point for me. The first question was, if she left you tomorrow, would you be OK? And I thought, oh my gosh, it wouldn't be just okay. I would feel relieved because it wouldn't have been me who did it. Like then I could say it's not my fault, you know. And I think it's a, it can be a sign of relational health to say that you'd still be healthy if your partner left you, but you might experience immense amounts of grief. So you know, I want to add the gray caveat to that. Second one was, could you imagine what it would be like waiting for her at the altar, whatever your altar is? And I thought, no, that made me feel anxious. And the last question was, could someone else love her better? And that was the question that rocked me because I thought to myself, yes, 100% someone could love her better. And it it reoriented the decision process from this sort of egocentric space of how's this impacting me? And I'm lost and I'm confused. And this ambivalence I had. And I really started to experience the ambivalence through her. And, and that changed everything because then i thought you know of course the follow up question to that is do you want to because i think we can find ourselves in these spaces where we take our partner for granted and that's just normal human behavior we get caught up in the world and etc but i didn't want to and i didn't know why and that was hard because she and my idealized version of relationship was it but i didn't want the relationship with her even though i was taught to want all of this and And so I left the engagement about three months after we got engaged and I felt a million pounds come off my shoulders and, you know, inevitably people told me, it'll hit you. But, you know, at that point, I'd been so preparing for it. I'd been processing it. And I really learned that when people leave relationships, they're so far ahead of the person they're leaving generally because they've already been processing the ending. So... I was living what I was taught to want. And, and when I left that, what was interesting is, and I think you can understand this definitely, is I started to see the momentum of all the people in my age group or in the momentum of the narrative of the story we're taught about life. I saw them all moving past me now. And then I started to question why I did the work I did. I started to question why I believed because i had felt I'd been lied to about relationships. I'd been taught, I grew up Catholic. I was taught you get married in your twenties to late thirties. You have kids by that time. And if you don't, there's something sort of wrong with you. And I think that age has probably increased to like 35 now, but uh, you know, it's like inflation has also affected that. But I, what I found was then I started to question a lot of the stories that were taught about who we are and, and what's possible with our lives. And, you know, because when I started to see my own engagement, when my own engagement ended, I started to see relational endings and dysfunction everywhere. Because instead my of my bias looking for relational success, I was my bias was now looking for other people like me. And that's when I was like, holy, shit, I've been missing that people are getting divorced all over that people are in relationships and they hate each other and we call that success because they're together and that's where i was saying like we would rather stay together to maintain the social status that comes with relational connection staying together than breaking up and liberating ourselves and our whoever we're in relationship with you know and and the narratives we have about how it impacts children which i think obviously, it's important. And of course, the ideal relational structure is two parents that love each other that are together. But the next is two parents who are apart who love each other. And then there's really no differentiation between dysfunctional and together and dysfunctional and apart. So yeah, yeah, undo. <laughs> let's let's deconstruct all that, you know,
0: it's, uh, it's just amazing to just to hear your thought process and how you processed all of that. And I think it's valuable because maybe somebody listening or watching right now might be going through something similar or they'll see parts of your story in a different relationship that they want to express more authenticity towards that person or end the relationship, which you said could be a beautiful thing. I love your videos on that, but something you said earlier was about purpose and how, What is our purpose and how do we find our unique purpose? I know for me, it's so valuable for me to have a purpose, for me to get out of bed and look forward to studying, educating, to recording podcasts with amazing people like you. But a lot of people, most people don't have that. They're going to jobs they hate. They're in relationships that are dysfunctional, but they're doing it because it's the social norm it's the conditioning, like you said. And there was a great book that came out, you probably know of it, called The Top Five Regrets of the Dying by uh, that hospice nurse in Australia, Bonnie Ware. And she surveyed hundreds of people on their deathbed. And the number one regret of people on their deathbed from her surveys was not living a life according to what they wanted to do. Instead, they lived the life of what others expected of them. And how detrimental is that to our health when we're not living on purpose with our purpose?
1: Oh, my gosh, you think of the inflammatory effect of that, you know, like, I I remember when I was first studying the inflammatory effect of high conflict relationships, how that affects our bodies, how that affects, you know, there's a study looking at wound healing, and it shows delayed wound healing in high conflict. Couples, other ones showing high conflict, couples have higher amounts of leaky gut. And it shows you, you know, this inflammatory process that occurs just when you know, essentially, we're dysregulated when we're in a state of fight, flight, freeze, fawn. And you know, it's that experience of, of what is the impact? I mean, I think anyone who's been in high stress, if high stress is normalized for us, then sometimes just getting into a state of stillness feels like if we're afraid of meditation, it's a good sign we need meditation. You know, they say like, I, I don't have, you know, 10 minutes, it's like, well, you need two hours, then Yeah, I remember hearing that quote, a silent mind is one that's been listened to. And when I heard that, I thought, well, mine is is certainly not silent. And so I knew I needed to go into the sort of belly of the beast. And, you know, the cost on our health. Well, the cost of silence is that when you avoid chaos on the outside, you internalize it. And I think people can recognize, you know, when they have something they truly want to say, and they feel that lump in their throat or their stomach gets a little sick, you know, when they're anxious about a future they're creating that they don't want to create. I mean, this all also goes back to the the what we're taught about emotion. You know, we're taught that emotions go into this category of Bad or good, negative or positive, like grief, anger, those are considered negative emotions. And there's this message that's sent to us that there's something wrong with you if you experience those feelings. So you need a pill to fix that. You need something, you need to fix that. But really, emotions are just information. You know, I think of like emotion evokes motion, it's trying to move you, it's trying to inform you about your environment. And, you know, the ones that we consider negative are really also the ones that we sort of form our idea of ourselves as being unworthy, right? Like if I have a sense of sadness or grief, there's this idea that if I'm holding this, I'm not worthy, as opposed to being informed by that. And so I think this speaks all to, like our relationship to emotion, our relationship to the information that's coming into ourselves, that's coming through our environment, through our body's response to things. So much are we conditioned to ignore that that the journey of relationship, the journey of nutrition, they're all teaching us how incredibly wise we are. You know, I, we were talking about this a little before we hit record, but that all of it is a journey to self, like all of it, like whether it's your breakup or your drug addiction or overeating or obesity or anything, eczema it can be, it doesn't really matter. It's all saying you're out of alignment. Like, why do you need food to soothe? Why do you need your phone? So much. Why can't you put it down? Why can't you choose your relationship with these things? And that shows you wherever you're not able to choose the relationship, you're you're being controlled by the other side of it, what you get from it. You know, I think of what Gabor Mate says. The wrong question is why the addiction? The right question is why the pain?
0: Mm, That's so good. Did you know there's actually beverages that can supercharge your fasting results? My favorite, which is a keto powerhouse, is apple cider vinegar. There's a ton of research showing apple cider vinegar has been beneficial for boosting your metabolism, suppressing appetite, reducing fat storage. That's because apple cider vinegar contains acetic acid, which is a short chain fatty acid that's been shown to promote weight loss in those ways. Also, apple cider vinegar is one of the best ways to balance your blood sugars. A study showed apple cider vinegar improved insulin sensitivity after high-carb meals up to 34%. We also know that apple cider vinegar stimulates digestion, acts as a stimulant to help break down the fat you're eating on keto. Another research study showed apple cider vinegar protects against mineral depletion. If you're like me, you probably don't like the taste of apple cider vinegar, I think it tastes disgusting. That's why my go-to is Paleo Valley's Apple Cider Vinegar Complex. This is an organic blend of apple cider vinegar and four more gut and health supportive superfoods. I take this before my meals. I take it before coffee, and this enhances my fast and my blood sugar regulation. You'll find it contains organic apple cider vinegar, organic turmeric, organic ginger, organic Ceylon cinnamon, and organic lemon. Since you are a listener of the Keto Camp podcast, we worked out an exclusive discount code for you to get the apple cider vinegar complex capsules and all of the products over at Paleo Valley. All you need to do is head to paleovalley.com and use the coupon code KETOCAMP15 at checkout for 15% off your entire order. By the way, they got delicious beef sticks and an awesome organ meat complex. Go check them out paleovalley.com. That is is fifteen at checkout. We'll also drop a link down below in the show notes. I could bring the scientific aspect of what you just said to help my audience understand the health, the health effect. Just real quick, you know, you said being in relationships and how infl- relationships with conflict and how inflammatory that can be. Dr. Bruce Lipton, who I know you recently interviewed, awesome interview, by the way. He's amazing. I had him a couple of years ago. I love the man. He's proven that high cortisol level stress is one of the quickest ways to wipe out the entire immune system. And he gives the example of um, patients that are going to have a kidney transplant procedure. And the surgeon who's about to perform that procedure, what do they do? They will inject the patient with stress hormones, which wipes out their immune system so it could accept that foreign object. That's exactly what stress is doing to us. There was also a book that came out in 1989 by a medical doctor named Dr. Larry Dossey. And it's called Recovering the Soul. I think you would love that book. It's right up your alley, Recovering the Soul. But there's a study in the book. And in the study, it showed they could predict 85% of the time when an American adult has their first heart attack or stroke, 85% of the time it happens because of this reason. It's not because of smoking or bad fats, or the common reason somebody might think uh, somebody might get a heart attack, it actually occurs Monday morning between eight a.m. and nine a.m. on their way to work to a job that they hate. Eighty-five percent of the time, isn't that absurd?
1: It's it, it just shows you that like our body gives so many warnings way before that warning. But if it's normal to live through the warnings, like that's everything is so normalized that's dysfunctional that's a challenge, like you were saying earlier, like our purpose, like, it's not normalized in university or in high school or even junior high to or middle school to say, hey, what do you want to do with your life? That is driven, like, if you could not get paid for you would do every day, I never got asked that in junior high, I got asked, what did I want to do? And I'd say something like, you know, be a spaceman or whatever. And then you get older, and they're like, you can't do that. You're like, we You just told me to dream. And now you're telling me I can't do the thing, you know? So it's not shocking to me, because when we perpetually do things that we don't love, we are sending the message that we're not worthy of something else that we don't believe in ourselves. But again, that's no one's fault. Like, of course, if you got to pay rent, and you got to do things, this isn't about just quitting your job to pursue your dream, because you know that when I had this desire to teach relationship, which I think so much of our purpose is born from what we seek to learn ourselves. Like, I think so much of it is, you know, we become the teacher we needed. And, and when there wasn't a path for us, or there wasn't someone who maybe we felt saw or taught what we needed, we go find them. And when we go find ourselves, and then we sort of teach a chapter ahead of whoever might want to learn from us. And so I always see it as like, I'm just teaching younger versions of me. And, you know, I think that, like if my friend John Morrow once said to me that if you want to find what matters to you, find what breaks your heart. And I love that because for me, that is what broke my heart was that people thought they were unworthy because their relationships ended. And I thought I've never been more connected to myself in my life. And yet I feel more judged than I ever have. And that felt like a, a very painful paradox to hold because I felt so liberated, but I felt by, by some people, not everybody, but by a lot of people, and by society, I felt judged and unloved. And that, that didn't make sense to me. And you know, when I was leaving my pharma, when I was looking at starting to write and go back to school and study relationships, I remember uh, um, going to a conference from Lisa Nichols. Mm, I love her. And she, yeah, she's so she's a powerhouse. And she said, "See your, your job as an investor in your dream." And that completely changed how I related to my job because before I resented that I still had to do it in order to, you know, and you hear these dreamy ideas, just quit your job, and do that, you know, and I thought, I'm going to do that. And then she said what she said and I was like, oh, now I appreciate this job because it's liberating me. And then when when it was no longer aligned and and there was enough of the other thing I could leave.
0: Great perspective. Uh, I love that. Lisa Nichols is a powerhouse. She is super funny yeah. as well. I love her. She is. Yeah. I, I remember Mark when I in two thousand and eight I was um, going through a bad breakup. Uh, girlfriend about five years. She ended the relationship. I was twenty four years old, super young. Relationship was going nowhere. I was playing video games all day. I had a nine to five job that was very uninspiring. And I was obese. I was 250 pounds, very much unhealthy. So she ended the relationship, and rightfully so. She made the right decision now that I look back. But back then, devastated. I was crying every day. I had to call my friends to come over because I had suicidal thoughts, and I was exploring suicide, and I was just tired of hurting every single day. And I did explore suicide, and every time I did that, I kept thinking about my mom and the devastation she would deal with if I took my life, and it stopped me. But it was this vicious cycle of exploring suicide, stopping myself, trying to figure things out. It was a lot of pain for me, and and that pain manifested in something very beautiful for myself because it, it was rock bottom for me, and I knew I had two decisions. I could take my life and just end my suffering but I wasn't going to do that because of my mom. So my only other option was to figure things out and use that rock bottom as a platform to spring out of because I knew as far down as I was in there, as I felt, I could go the opposite direction. But it wasn't until I personally took ownership and responsibility that everything changed for me. I felt like when I said those words out loud, I am responsible for this. My guilt, resentment, anger just went out the window. And it came, taking ownership came from a quote, from Dr. Wayne Dyer. He said, if other people are the cause of your problems, you would have to hire a psychiatrist for the rest of the world in order for you to get better. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great <laughs> It's quote. such a great quote. And I thought, damn, that is true. So I use that pain. I, I use that heartbreak, like you were just saying, to channel that energy. In the addi- I had a lot of addictive behavior. So I, I channeled that energy in that addiction of video games and drugs and toxic behaviors to exercise and nutrition and studying and, and it changed the course of my life. I ended up becoming a personal trainer and then a health coach and writing books and creating keto camp and all the things that I'm doing. But it's that that rock bottom that was a blessing for me. And I share that because I want you to give your perspective on my story and then maybe relate it to somebody that might be going through their rock bottom right now.
1: I mean, your story demonstrates what one can do when they take the pain that they have and use it to alchemize, right, like turn it in, you know, because the process of alchemy is turning materials into gold. And when we have energy like anger, rage, grief, we normally are not taught to sit in it, right? Like, I went through a breakup a couple of years ago, we since have reunited, but in the ending of it, I remember sitting and thinking to myself, like being alive is not as good as the idea of not being alive. Like I remember, you know, formulating the equation and thinking right now, life isn't winning. And I had the the consciousness and the ability to be mindful of that and also do like you did. I called a friend and said, I just need you to be here because I need like a bridge to possibility and hope and and that I'm still on this plane, that there's this love between me and my friends. That is enough that will hold me through this. But I also knew that previously in breakups, I'd been totally transformed by them. I knew that something always more powerful, something always more beautiful, something I, I had already experienced that. So I knew that something was going to be cooked through this, you know, like formulated. But when you're in it, you're like, well, f- I great, let's get the chef. Yay, woo, <laughs> yeah. you know, five star already. <laughs> All right. And I knew the power of grief, but I'd never processed a breakup sober before. And so I sat in it and I felt a lot of like my, my new pain was actually old pain, old grief from the breakup I was telling you about when I was 19, 20, I'd never really sat in the betrayal and the loss that I experienced that. And it, of course it brought up feelings from youth, it brought up, you know, the range of my life because I'd never sat in grief. I didn't know how I'd never seen someone do it. And I think so much what we do is we try to save people from feelings we don't know the value of. You know, so if someone's going through a breakup, we'll try to get them to not experience the breakup because we don't know the actual magic. You know, like if someone's going through a breakup now, you would never rob them because you know what you created from it. And so when people are going through relational transformations like that, I'm just like, wow, like you're going to create the coolest that you didn't even know while you're still in the grief, I'm not trying to move them out of it, and not trying to rush the process, but just showing a light of what's possible through this. And, you know, you think without that, without that moment, you might have, she might have stayed the same, and you might have stayed the same, and none of us would be experiencing the transformational benefits of what you turned your pain into. And I mean, I think that process for me has been so true too. Like my engagement turned into my work, into my passion, into where I saw a gap in the what I saw a gap in the human experience and what we were being taught. Why are we not being taught how to love? Like that is like one of the most profound skill sets we could ever have that will have the greatest impact on our quality of life and health. And yet we're learning the Pythagorean theorem, you know? which I'm sure has value. And I'm sure on a mathematical level is really important for relationships too. For threesomes, right? (laughs) That's A (laughs) squared plus B squared equals C squared. (laughs) But you know, I think when we can realize that when it's over, or when it's stopped, and that could be in the context of everything, but in the context of breakups, then you're actually done doing something like you might be present for your first time in your life to your pain. And when people leave us, it's hard to see that as a gift, of course. But I'll hear someone say, like, when they left, they took everything. Or they took a part of me. And, you know, that's part of that language that we're taught, that people complete us. That, And I always say to people when they're processing that feeling, is I'm like, what did you give them that they could take? Because if your happiness depends on your relationship, or your body, or whatever it is, It will be taken from you so that you learn that it doesn't live there. And when your relationship is your life, which I think is normalized too, you know, give up everything for love, you know, all that kind of stuff. And you lose your relationship, then you lose your sense of life. But when your relationship is one aspect of your life, and it obviously contributes to well-being and all those things, and you lose it, you don't lose your life. There's a space in it, and the space is companionship and love, and I'm not saying that that's not important. But you have all these other things that matter to you. Like if my partner and I broke up now, this doesn't sound romantic, I would be okay. I would be devastated. I'd experience tons of grief. I've experienced that already when we'd broken up before. But I know that me as a human would be okay. And I would probably use whatever's created from it. One, I trust that something different is coming down the pipe. And I would trust that I'd turn it into something too. And and I think like you keep showing this in all of the rebirths that you do, because it's not like the guy in 2008. You've been creating since then. You know, And, and what is the greatest source of where you create from? I'm curious to hear.
0: The greatest source from where I create from. Um, for, for me, it's I lost my um, I actually went through more heartbreak and grief. I lost my dad in 2014 through the complications of diabetes, which raised a lot of questions following conventional wisdom. He ended up losing his life. And I asked all these questions: why did he end up going through so much pain and suffering, suffering a massive stroke, bedridden nine months, paralyzed, and he ended up passing away. And I got the answers to all those questions. So for me, I know the information that I write in my books, share on stages, talk about on podcast would have probably saved my dad's life. But I also get that I was given that mountain. So now I could show the world the mountain can be moved. So if that's the space that I create from to help people avoid the suffering that my dad went through.
1: Right. Like hard to hard to um, like, because of course, you would never trade any of that
0: or no, sorry, you, I wouldn't. I wouldn't have a fire.
1: You know, we're like, that's the thing is, it's like, you can't change it, right? Like we can't change it. And and of course if we can go back. We'd all keep people longer. And right, we, of course we would, because we selfishly want to hold on to that. And and that's not a bad thing. That's just a human thing. And you think like, wow, what you continue, you know that there is alchemy in those experiences. And so you're like, at the same time as I've learned how to do too, is like to bridge the grief not rush it, not escape it, visit it, learn from it. You know, when we ask our pain, what are you teaching me? When you ask your wound, when you get triggered, what would you hope I'd learn? You know, like if you think about it, every single trigger is really an invitation to mastery because there is a specific thing that triggers you relationally or it could be in anything. And if you were to just observe the trigger, you'd say, okay, well, why am I sensitive to this specific thing? Being minimized, not feeling heard, not feeling understood, feeling walked on, feeling not appreciated. What skill set would I need to learn to know that I have my own back in these circumstances? And then you'd learn boundaries, you'd learn self expression, but you will keep experiencing the trigger till you accept the invitation of the trigger to expansion. And then when you learn the new skill and then you're in the trigger because most people go, well, I thought I healed it and then the next time it happened, I got triggered again. The trigger doesn't go anywhere, it's a radar. It just says, are you gonna react from this or are you gonna respond from it? And you, know, you made that beautiful point earlier about responsibility. Well, the first step everyone has to take to change, no matter what the context is, is saying, I am responsible for everything that is in my life. I'm not responsible for everything that has happened but I am responsible for what I do with what has happened. And the moment you do that, you go from being a, a passenger in life to really being conscious of choice. But then to be conscious of choice requires processing the dissonance of all the times you made choices that weren't good for you. Which we're all going to do, and that's going to continue to happen. But the point isn't making only good choices. The point is making a choice, experiencing the pain of the poor choice, and then taking that pain and transforming your choices. So, one of the most powerful rules I ever made in my life was when I said, I will always live at my highest level of knowledge. Like, as soon as I learn something, I have to change because otherwise, I'm not honoring the younger version of me who's now made the mistake. And so, you know, responsibility, you have to be able to sort of eat humble pie to experience expansion, you know, you have to be able to, I think of it as healthy shame, because really healthy shame is the experience of the awareness that a better behavior is available. Unhealthy shame or toxic shame is I am a problem. I, I'm broken. As opposed to my, jo- my choices are broken. There's a reality that we have to pay attention to. Like if someone leaves us, like you said, she left me and she should have left me. That was the right choice. Oh my God, like it takes so much self-awareness to be able to say that because you've transformed from it. You can hold it. And I look at like when I've been betrayed or, you know, like when I got cheated on, I look back and I go, well, that's exactly what happens to someone who doesn't have boundaries. She's not the villain. You know, she's actually the person who taught me that I needed boundaries the most. Like, what a gift that is. Because if I had to go through that kind of betrayal more than a few times, I it took me a few times to learn, so highest level of knowledge, you know. But that's like, so, you know, that's some of the most, the hardest pain in life is, some of it is betrayal. But, like, you know, well, I was going to say wherever there's external betrayal, there's betrayal Within ourselves, long before, generally,
0: such a beautiful perspective. I, I want to stay on the topic here of boundaries and a, com, a common challenge I see with people who start to make nutritional changes. So let's say they change their their nutrition, they change their lifestyle, they want to live a healthier lifestyle. <laughs> the challenge is setting boundaries with friends and family members who start to make remarks. Because what, I, what I've what i seen from personal experience and also working with clients is when you change, you become a threat to people in your life who are not changing, right? It's kind of pointing a mirror to them, and it's easier for them to kind of bring you back down to their level versus them having to change or them making decisions to change. So, for example, you know, somebody doing keto, two weeks into it, doing so great, feeling better, lowering inflammation, sleep is improving, And they go to an event, and uh, either their family members are there, or some friends, and their friends are kind of making remarks like, "You're doing that keto thing, and you get a heart attack," or they, you know, kind of peer pressure them to just cheat a little bit, you know, break the diet. Like, so how do how do they set boundaries and have these conversations with their friends and families to get them on board so they could stay successful on this new lifestyle change?
1: Man, some of the most important work, because I, you know, when we are boundaryless or like afraid to express a boundary it comes from such a beautiful place. The beautiful part of it is that we're really trying to protect other people from experiencing feelings, feelings that we don't know the value of yet. You know, when I first quit drinking, I remember being afraid because I was a best man, a MC at a wedding, the same wedding I was I had a bachelor party, I had an annual guys trip, like all within four months of quitting. And I thought to myself, like, why am I so afraid of these events? And it was because I was afraid that if I said no to them, other people would experience the discomfort of what I'm saying no to. Do you know what I mean? Like I was afraid of the social pressure, but also agreeing to the social norms. Yeah. I could totally, I could totally relate to that. Yep. Yeah. And and I thought, well, if I can survive a wedding and being a best man and a bachelor party, all these things sober, then I could live through anything. You know, and it was actually true. The first wedding I went to sober, I remember thinking, oh my God, I'm actually having a lot of fun. I didn't know. I know this might sound totally foreign to other people, but I didn't know you could have as much fun sober because I'd only ever drank at wedding. And I think the same thing sort of applies is when when you're setting boundaries relationally, whether it's about food or anything. And you say like, let's say we break up with someone and we want to maintain contact with them, but we know that that's unhealthy. We know that that's derailing us. Just like if I go to this wedding, I want to someone saying, eat the sourdough. It's sourdough. It doesn't even have the same inflammatory effect as regular bread. And you're like, you're wanting to say no, but what the fear is, is how it might impact them. And so what's actually unconsciously happening is you're making other people's feelings more important than your own, which is the same symptomatic behavior of needing to anesthetize with sugar, right? It's the same thing. I'm taking the thing that anesthetizes and I'm making it more important than sitting in my own discomfort of other people feeling feelings and me not doing anything about them. Right Because it's a sign of all of it. really, it's codependency, right? Like other people's feelings are a priority over mine. Insert I need to eat a carbohydrate to feel better about myself, or I need my phone or I need porn or I need alcohol or I need drugs. And so the first level of awareness is is just feeling into the pain that the reason we don't put the boundary up is because we make other people's feelings more important than ours. And that usually a source from childhood that's and so then we have to at least just be aware of that. Where did I learn that it was actually an important survival skill to make sure that I took care of mom's feelings or dad was an alcoholic or mom was angry. So I wanted to walk on the eggshells or my brother or my sister was eruptive or whatever it might be or I got bullied, you know, being able to sit with where did we first and it could be you know, the memory might even be as a toddler. Where did we first say, this other person's feelings matter more than mine? And what I love about the process of exploring these things is that actually really contributes to the lack of desire for whatever thing we're in poor relationship with. Because now you're getting to the core. And that's the beauty of starting to do keto, starting to think about these things, changing our the nutrition content Because what sugar, you know, you know this very well, much better than I do. I'm just talking about my own relationship to sugar here. Is that sugar for me made me not have to feel things as much? It was what I learned as a kid in order to soothe, not feeling like I belong, not feeling like I was enough. I could have a Slurpee or a five cent candy. I don't know if you call them that in the States, but in Canada, they're like gummy candies, right? That you pay. And that, you know, you have a freaking gummy bear, that'll soothe a lot of things. You have 27 of them, and now we're rolling. And, and so that's why that process of starting to see how important this thing is to you, can you hold on to the importance of that thing for you when it's in conflict with what's important to someone else? And you really nailed it when you said like, the, whenever we change any behavior within ourselves, and we're part of a system, and any relationship is a system, any family is a system, Everyone takes on a role in a family. Everyone takes on a role in a friendship group. It's usually the role we took in our families. And when we change one role, I now have boundaries. I now don't agree with that behavior. I now don't drink. I now don't eat. Uh, I'm now keto. We are now saying that we're changing how we're operating in the system. So we have to change how we orient to the system, but the system has to change how it orients to us. And what's so much easier is for the system to make you go back to make the system roll, and it's so much easier for us too, because we don't have to face the dysregulation, or the disruption of the system having to reorient, like if you get sober, and then you're hanging out with all your friends who get wasted all the time, they're going to try to to get you to have a drink. Because it's easier, as you said, to get you to do that than to face their own inability to choose not drinking or, or a better diet or whatever it might be.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and that's such an important explanation. I hope those listening and watching rewinds this and listens to that again, because I know it's very common for people to go through that and it's all part of the journey. If you're anything like me, you spend a lot of money on supplements each month. Have you ever thought these supplements are actually working for you? Are they attaching to your receptor sites and helping your cells do a specific job? What if you're not getting enough minerals or what if you have too much of something creating an imbalance in other minerals? Knowing this will not only save you money, but it'll also improve your health so you could balance out the vitamins and minerals that you really need. With that being said, how the heck do you know if you have a mineral imbalance? What I'm bringing you today is a chance to accurately test all of that at the comfort of your home. In this case, I'm talking about my friends over at Upgraded Formulas and their upgraded hair test kit and consultation When you discover the truth here and what's going on with your body, you can vanquish any of those hidden deficiencies that are affecting your metabolism, thyroid, adrenals, mental performance, endurance, strength, and sleep, just to name a few. I've had Barton Scott on the show before, and he gave a masterclass on minerals. How this works is simple. You are sent a test kit, and you use some of your hair. You just cut off a short piece of your hair. It could be on your head or pubic hair. You send it back to them, and they have your results. They also offer a consultation to go over your results with you. It's simple, it's effective, and it's one of the best tests to know if what you're doing is working for you or not. If you'd like to get your hands on their deficiency test and consultation, head to UpgradedFormulas.com. Use the coupon code KETOCAMP15 to receive 15% off your entire order. That is UpgradedFormulas.com. Use the coupon code KETOCAMP15 at checkout. We'll also drop a link down below. I know for me, when I was a young boy and being obese and my mom spoiled me very, very much and I I love my mom, she's my super mom and superhero, but her way of feeling like she's loving and caring for me is feeding me, right? So I remember when I went through my health transformation and I started to eat clean she would bring home some fast food or cook food that wasn't aligned with my new behaviors. And it was very hard for me to say, mom, I don't, I don't eat that anymore. And I knew that was her way of loving me for me to eat that food. But having the conversations with her, letting her know that that food doesn't let, help me feel good. I feel depressed when I eat it. I have goals. And those conversations helped. You know, my mom became aware of why I made these changes. But even to this day, I that's still in me. Like I even with around people and my too. fiance's parents. Yeah, it's like... Just this past Sunday, Father's Day, I had uh, dinner with my fiance's mom and dad, and I'm doing carnivore this month, so I'm just eating meat. So I show up there, and her parents made—it's delicious, just meat. But her mom makes this like beautiful gluten-free cake, and she knows I'm gluten-free, and I'm like. Oh, this is amazing for this month. I'm doing carnivore, but I'll take it with me and freeze it and eat it next month. Right. So like having those conversations, but even for me, it's been a
1: challenge. Well, you know, I think first off, how great would a filet dessert be, you know, like if you're going to do it, um, (laughs) or like a nice, uh, uh, carpaccio, but yeah, I think that's, what's so is you start to see the evidence of you having your own back, and allowing other people to have the experience of being disappointed by whatever it is, and, and us not trying to save them from the disappointment, and also exploring, does their disappointment is it formally correlated with how I feel about myself, you know, and and what happens is you start to liberate yourself from the experiences of other people. So it's like, I have the right to my experience, they have the right to theirs. And what we start to do is build self trust you know, like boundaries are so beautiful. Like if you want to have an amazing life, just learn boundaries like that. It will transcend to everything because boundaries, essentially what they do is preserve wholeness. They draw a circle around who you are. And it's about not just keeping negative or dysfunctional behavior out. It's also about keeping it in, right? Like it's about managing our own thoughts, feelings, and beliefs and not Pushing them on other people, which that can be that could be hard, you know, as a as an outspoken form of pharmaceutical rep, Okay. I have a, that's one of my areas of development. But what boundaries do is when you declare one, you say, I matter. And if you've never had boundaries, the first one you ever declare is the most courageous leap. Because you don't know that going off the leaping off that cliff there's this beautiful parachute that you're the one deploying with the boundary, and so you don't even know what it feels like to be caught by yourself, and so you set the boundary you're like, "Holy crap, I can like this is amazing I'm badass and so you set it, and then what it does is by preserving it, you keep making deposits, so it's this symbiotic relationship if you have boundaries you'll feel worthy of boundaries, right? But there's always that first time. And you know, like you said, it doesn't go anywhere. It's not like my sensitivity to people pleasing disappears because I have boundaries. It's important to be compassionate and empathic to other people's experiences. It's just don't allow them to cause you to abandon what is important to you, your values, your needs and what matters. And when we're doing things like exploring keto, we're saying what I need matters. And I mean, what a beautiful thing to do. And I think like the one thing that we all are constantly exploring in relationship is, do I have my own back? And to me, that's like an ever learning thing, because there's, you know, even though I explore healing codependency within interpersonal relationships, I recognize then there's collective codependency, like, am I afraid to say what I truly feel about what's going on in the world? And or am I self silencing in order to maintain some perception of belonging? You know, I, again, this is the healing never stops. I think instead of this idea that we're like getting more and more to the core of our pain or our brokenness, what we're really doing is getting bigger and bigger and expanding and taking up more space. You know, it's a kind of a different orientation.
0: Yeah, no, it's, it's an amazing journey of uh, exploration. Uh, it really is. I, I'm curious, Mark, um, why did you decide to stop drinking alcohol? <laughs>
1: You know, I'd had this, I'd never really been like a constant, you know, I didn't drink every day. That wasn't my relationship to alcohol, but I was definitely a binge drinker. And, you know, I was talking to my sister about this earlier today, actually, that like, it was so interesting to, that binge drinking was so much normalized in my social groups and in college, you know, that's totally normalized, that I didn't really see it as a problem. And then, As I got into my 30s, I remember just having this feeling of like, I want to know what it's like. like. Like, I didn't like this idea that if I went out on a Friday, I felt socially obligated to drink. Like, to me, I thought, well, that means I'm making other people's feelings about me in a social setting more important than my actual needs and feelings. And I just felt intuitively like I needed to quit. And then I was listening to a book by Paul Selig, and it was called The Book of Truth, and Paul Selig is a channel. And i had heard him on Aubrey Marcus's podcast, and he said, uh, your body can only alchemize the lowest level of truth you're willing to hold. And I thought, all right, I don't really know what that means, but that's interesting, like there's something in it. And as I was listening to it, he said, uh, what, what do you know to be true that you don't live by? And I thought, oh, instantly it was like, I need alcohol to connect. And I was like, oh, no. And he gave this analogy where he said, it's like being a fish swimming in an aquarium who learns about the ocean and then goes back to the aquarium and pretends they don't know about the ocean. And I was talking to my friend, Traver Boehm. I'd met him at this uh, this bachelor party right before I quit. And he wasn't drinking. And this guy is like super cool guy, former UFC kind of fighter, you know, and he's having the time of his life sober. And I was like, why did you quit? And he said, best decision I ever made in my life. Like he said, I quit the day my wife left me and I quit for a year, but it's been at that time four. And I was like, wow, okay. And so just all these messages kept coming and then I I quit. I thought, okay, I'll quit for a year. But honestly, as soon as I Probably was six months in, I was like, I don't know that I could ever go back. You know. I thought about maybe trying a glass of wine, and then I had two nightmares <laughs> that I got wasted and messed my life up. So you know, I, I don't know. Like I have you know I have relationships with lots of people who drink. I think that one, I was very prone to more and more and more. I have that relationship with most things. And the other side of it is that I just love being present so much. That anything that pulls me out of presence now, I just don't want I'm curious your thoughts on alcohol and how you...
0: Yeah, I, I, I could relate to what, everything you just shared. I think it's uh, empowering and inspiring. So six plus years ago, I made that decision to give up alcohol myself and never was problematic. I drank maybe once a month. It wasn't really binge drinking. I had a tequila or so, but every time I drank, the next day I was a step or two behind. And, you know, maybe some brain fog. I just wasn't on top of my game. And I felt like it was hurting the mission. And I was so passionate and I am so passionate and pulled by the mission. And if something's going to kind of take me away from that, even a little bit, it it isn't aligned with my main goals and my focus and the people I want to help. So I decided, you know, I'm just going to get rid of it. Maybe I get rid of it for the next few months or the next few years and that was six plus years ago. And I haven't felt the need or the urge or the desire or the anything to, to pick it up again. I don't know if I ever will. But Same. yeah, it's been one of the best decisions I've made as well.
1: Honestly, it's been so powerful. And then I was like, wow, I have so much energy on Saturday mornings. You know? And you're know, right. <laughs> you like, wait, you know, I thought about all the things I traded for that evening out. And, you know, the things I loved the most, like working out or hiking or, you know, that was inevitably what I was trading. And then when I started to experience more of those things, I thought, well, this is where you truly find yourself and your soul. And uh, I think like you, although what you just said really resonates with me of like the mission matters so much. And I think in the last year, two years, just being, there's just so much going on from a societal perspective that I have felt that like, um, like distracted a little bit from the mission. And so I feel inspired by what you just said, that I'm like, oh, the mission has to be center. Because if you find something that matters to you enough, you'll change everything. And so you just have to find the thing that matters to you enough. And if you find the thing that matters to you, you'll change your behaviors, you'll change your habits, you'll change... You just got to find something that moves you so much that you're willing to put down the thing that distracts you from the pain, because you know the pain is what's going to be the thing that ultimately catalyzes your transformation. Which, man... That's a the juice is in that journey.
0: Oh my gosh. It it so is. And the, the the difficult part for people is finding that, like their their purpose, their why. Their um, I believe the Dr. John D Martini calls it your your telos, like the Greek calls it like your highest values. And for me, it came out of pain, right? And for a lot of people, it could come out of that pain, which is a beautiful thing. So if you're going through pain right now, on the opposite side is something really great. Amazing doors are opening for you. And um I was going to say something that came to my head. Okay, yeah, this is what I was going to say, Mark. I I once heard Earl Nightingale, he said this in 1955. He said, this is his definition of success, and I think it's the greatest definition that holds true in 2022. He said, success is the progressive realization of a worthy ideal. Okay, so an ideal is an idea, a goal that you have fallen in love with. And as long as you are progressing towards that goal, you're successful, you're happy, you're living on purpose with your purpose. And the cool thing about that definition is that the ideal could be being the best mom in the world, the best dad, the best soccer coach, the best keto influence, whatever it is. But as long as you're moving towards that, you're successful. And it's not about goals are not about getting, it's about growing. And I always keep that in my Mm, forefront. I, I write. I actually write down my goal on a goal card and I read it all day long just to keep feeding that desire to me every and reminding myself every single day.
1: I love that. Goals are not about getting, they're about growing. Mm. I believe it. That's beautiful. I believe it. I agree. When we're outcome oriented, then we continuously feel a lack of worth because we're not achieving the outcome, you know, and being able to orient differently towards goals is so liberating. So yeah, I appreciate that. I like that quote.
0: I want to finish the conversation. This has been great. We set the bar high and I believe we achieved it. <laughs>
1: I, I hope so.
0: You've been amazing. I, I want to, um, I want to end the conversation with your create the love, which is like a, an amazing movement that you've started. Share about that, create the love, which is your Instagram handle. What is it about? How could people learn more about it?
1: Yeah. I mean, it was birthed from this idea that so many people were saying like, oh, when I find the right person or when I do the, you know, and much like that goal orientation, And I, I thought about, I think it's a Stephen Covey quote where he talks about how love is a verb, that it's in our actions, it's in what we do. And, you know, if we, if we make withdrawals from our love accounts, we can also make deposits. And I really thought it's all about creating it, like great relationships don't just come to people, they're created, you know, they're in through our behaviors, much like you said about taking responsibility for how we want to show up to the world, how we want to love. And I, you know, I, There's a quote from Eric Fromm from The Art of Loving where he says that there's not a single other human endeavor that we fail at more than love and we don't take the time to learn. And, you know, it's a skill set. Anyone can learn it. And that was something when I started to learn about relating on a romantic level and just interpersonally at just a different way, a, a more integrated, a more skilled way. I was like, wow, everyone can learn less. Like we all think it's just fate. Like you just inherit these skills and if you get them, you do. And if you don't, and I don't want to become like my mom and dad and then inevitably we do. It was like, no, you can change all that. And I think it's very similar to uh, biology. You know, we think we inherit all these genes, but we don't realize the power of epigenetics. And much like our relational patterns are inherited very similarly, they can all be changed and transformed by being the first person in our family tree to say, I'm tired of the shit. I'm tired of the old stuff. I'm ready to give birth to something new. So that's what Create the Love's all about.
0: Oh, I love that. No pun intended. <laughs> your uh, your Instagram is Create the Love. Share you have a podcast, Mark Groves Podcast, YouTube channel is amazing. We'll link down below. Where else can they go check you out, Mark?
1: Yeah, you could check me out at all those. I also have an app called Mind, M-I-N-E apostrophe D. And that's for emotional relational wellness. It's video on demand and live classes. You can pretty much find everything you want from top relational teachers in the world. And um, yeah, all that you can find, everything you can find in my Instagram link. So to make it easy for me. It's
0: amazing. Yeah, well, for those watching and listening, we'll put links down below for all of what just Mark mentioned. Last question. Let's get some vitamin G gratitude. What are you grateful for right now, Mark? Mm,
1: I'm grateful for family, for family and connection. Um, just being able to like, be with the people I love. I think that the online world is an easy one to get lost in. And I'm constantly reminded when I'm in the presence of family and people that I'm like, this is what it's all about.
0: I love that. Well, I'm grateful for you, Mark. I'm grateful that Aaron Smith connected us. So shout out to Aaron, if you're watching and listening. Your, Your work is amazing. And I acknowledge you for showing up so authentically and living it to lead it. Taking that pain, turning into a purpose, turning that purpose into a promise, and that promise is to create the love for every single human being that comes across your work. And I feel like you're just getting started, and I'm excited for the future and what you're going to bring. And uh, I want to say thank you for coming on my show today. It's been super valuable for me and my audience.
1: Oh, Thank you, brother, for having me. I can't wait to have you on my podcast and explore your journey. So, everyone on here, stay tuned for it because I can't wait to dive deep into it. Thank you for having me and thank you for trusting me with your people.
0: I hope you enjoyed that inspiring conversation with Mark. Go to his website, markgroves.com. Go listen to his podcast, the Mark Groves Podcast. I'm going to be a guest on that show. Very, very soon. We'll put his Instagram, his social media, everything can be found down below, and his YouTube channel. Go send him some love. Let him know you listen to him on the Keto Camp podcast. And please share this with somebody you know, somebody you believe this conversation would make a big difference for. If you still have not left the Keto Camp podcast, a rating or a review, please do so right now. That would really mean a lot to us here at Keto Camp because it helps us get the message out there more efficiently. I want to thank you so much for spending part of your day with Mark and myself. I've got a lot of vitamin G gratitude for you. I've got a lot of love for you. Go out there, live authentic, on purpose with your purpose. Go make a difference. And it starts with those thoughts you have every single day. Thank you so much for listening. I'll see you on the next episode.